from WNPR. I'm John Dankosky, and this is The Wheelhouse. We're not going to have a full year budget between now and July 1. It's just not going to happen. We will not be on the bill this week, but we're still working toward getting uh, at least 50 people in a comfortable place. I think America is frankly looking for something better. They're looking for something more, uh, and I think they deserve something better from our news media. Trinity says the review of Johnny Eric Williams' actions will continue while he's on leave. Last week, several lawmakers called for him to be fired after he posted an article that seemed to condone the killing of white people with the hashtag, let them all effing die. Those are some of the stories we'll talk about this week in the wheelhouse. And there is a lot to talk about in the news with Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Howdy, Colin. Good morning. Uh, Kevin Rennie is here. He's a Hartford Current columnist. He also blogs at dailyructions.com. Hello there, Kevin. Good morning, John. And Kalila Brown-Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University. Hello there, Kalila. Good to see you. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266, you can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash the wheelhouse. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. I guess we'll start in Washington today in the gridlock that's happening there, facing a lot of opposition from their own party, uh, some in the middle, some on the right. Senate leaders have postponed their vote on the overhaul to Obamacare. Uh, President Trump uh, met with some senators yesterday, said he still hopes things are going to get done. Mike Pence is out in the world trying to work on this today. Uh, there's a lot to talk about, Colin, including what our own U.S. senator said uh, earlier this week on where we live. But I guess I'll go to you first. I mean, this is the second try that the Republicans have had at this. Uh, Mitch McConnell can't seem to get 50 votes on this bill, which doesn't seem to be very popular amongst the American public. To be fair, I don't think anybody really understands what the bill is when asked a question, do you like this new Republican health care bill? Right. Maybe they, the American public deserves credit for at least kind of understanding the basic mechanics of what's happening here. And and so, I mean, does the Affordable Care Act work in an optimal work? Does it work in an optimal way? No, not really. Although some of its defects apply to a fairly small percentage of people who are using it, and those are people who are individually acquiring acquiring health insurance through private providers, basically. Um, but, I mean, the things that are wrong with the Affordable Care Act can essentially not be fixed by pushing the, the health care system to the right. Um, this already was constructed. It was a system that was constructed to keep the private providers, the private insurance providers, uh, in the game. Uh, and, I mean, the way that you can fix it, you have to control costs. Uh, and you have to provide some level of competition, affordable competition, through something like a public option. That, that was not something that President Obama was even really willing to talk about very much. I don't think he saw it as a political reality. So it's like they keep going into these meetings and making the bill harsher and the system harsher and then coming out and they're astonished that people don't like it better. In some of these cases, what they're doing is basically eliminating health insurance. I mean, if you make $26,000 a year and you have a policy with a $6,000 deductible, you don't have health insurance. I mean, you would be bankrupt essentially by the time you could access your benefits. And that's a little bit of the drift of some of these changes. So right now, I mean, the reason that they're not voting this this week is that they don't have the votes for it. Um, you know, McConnell can only absorb two defectors. He's got at least four defectors. He may have more. And they're not all defecting for the same reason, too. Some of them think the bill is too harsh, and some of them think it's not harsh enough. Uh, 22 million uh, additional people who won't have insurance under this plan, Kevin. That's according to the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, I think one of the analyses has been 
that Mitch McConnell is trying to figure out a way to get a very close vote and then lose this fight, in part because he he knows that the American public just aren't going to like anything that's in here. They want to try to do what they've said they're going to do for many years is repeal and replace uh, Obamacare. But if they just can't do it this time, especially with a bill that nobody likes, well, maybe that's okay for them. Is there something to that? Well, they had no trouble passing a uh, a law that they knew, a bill that they knew wouldn't become law before, <laughs> before, they were, before a Republican was elected president of the United States. So now they're in a they're in a quandary because uh, their their rhetoric from the past several years seems to be, have been meaningless. The the bill really that 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 is in the Senate right now does two primary things. It um, it takes away the mandatory the requirement that everyone have health insurance. And it makes changes in the Medicaid program, which under uh, um, Obamacare was vastly, vastly expanded. And that's that's where a lot of the money is. And um, Medicare in the uh, in the 50 some odd years since it was uh, enacted under President Johnson hasn't really been um, Reformed into uh, into the 21st century, and uh, what if it means changes in an entitlement? Well, you can always you can always find a lot of people to oppose changes in an entitlement program. And now, you know, in Connecticut, for instance, I, I think we have about 750 thousand people on Medicaid. And at some point, we're going to have to ask ourselves: in a state where there is no economic growth. How do we keep financing these expanding programs? And essentially what this uh, plan would do, Kalila, is it would, if if it cut back on the amount that the states were getting for that Medicaid expansion, it would mean that our state, and we're going to talk about this in just a little bit, which doesn't seem to have uh, two nickels to rub together, would have to uh, front the costs for that Medicaid expansion on their own. It does provide service for an awful lot of people. Of course, one of the things that's often said is, Look, we're going to provide service to these people one way or the other. If you don't have health insurance and you just show up because you got a toothache at the emergency room, that's going to cost us a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's also going to cost us a lot of money the way that we're doing it right now. And I think it's going to cost us a lot of money in other ways, too, particularly when you think about public safety and law enforcement. What is it going to mean if people don't have access to mental health care because of this, if they don't have access to drug treatment because of these plans? It creates a crisis, not just for the person who's not covered, but really for communities overall. And that's why I think the question of what does a win look like here is much bigger than who will it help get reelected when those big congressional races come up? What will it mean for everyday taxpayers? What will it mean for families? And what will it mean for this state if we have this new budget crunch that we really cannot afford these costs? Did you have a thought, Kevin? Well, I have a thought that the Republicans, have, have, they're not going to be able to do this, but I know what's on their minds is that Obamacare in many places uh, has really failed. And when you look in Connecticut, for instance, Cigna and Aetna, uh, two huge health insurance providers, didn't didn't join our state uh, exchanges. Even though, as Colin said earlier, they sat down and helped to write the bill. Oh, they, the they, bill they, was they, written know, for so them. Now they're complaining that it's not working out, but they, they were crucial supporters of that legislation. And so often happens with with corporations, they are terrible at politics. They're just terrible. They're, they're just it's not what they do. They do they do many things very very well, but predicting the course of 
political decisions is not one of them. Colin? Um, you know, one thing that we haven't said, uh, Kevin said the bill did two things. Uh, one other very significant thing it does is essentially provide an enormous tax, tax cut to the very, very wealthiest Americans. And to, it does that in order essentially to take away money that was being used to fund Medicaid for 20 percent. 20 percent of Americans use Medicaid. It's, um, so I, I do think that in an odd way, They've been put in a very strange position. The cycle goes a little bit like this. You've got Obamacare, a creation, the ACA, a creation essentially of Barack Obama, who was very interested in getting a lot of stakeholders involved, including private insurance companies. Um, then you've got Trump, who ran against Obamacare saying this insane thing that he was going to provide, I think he used the term, big, beautiful health care, you know, that everybody was going to be really, really much happier with who their health care. sign up for yeah. that? The premiums Bigly. were going to be lower, the deductibles were going to be lower, and the care was going to be more comprehensive. That was essentially his me message. It was an insane thing to say. It, it certainly wasn't anything that Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell were thinking about. They were not thinking about big, beautiful health care. They were thinking more, more in the other direction. So, so you get Trump gets elected. He's got this crazy thing that he's been saying. Meanwhile, they go to work on this thing, which is very very unappetizing to people. Um, now, now they're in a position where, as you say, either they they basically take a dive, right? They arrange to sort of get knocked out in, in the third round, so they, they don't have to own this thing. They won't pass it, you know. But they can say, "Well, we tried to repeal and replace, and, and various things happened." So they don't have to run on having done this. But I would assume in 2018, a lot of them are going to have to run on having participated in this effort, which I think, you know, even though the people's understanding of it is very crude, they can get the thing I just said, which was the very wealthiest, you know, really kind of a fraction of the wealthiest 1% of Americans were going to get this incredible tax bonanza because they didn't feel like paying for Medicaid anymore. Uh, and I think that's a relatively, I mean, the Democrats are terrible campaigners too, and they'll do a lousy job of getting this message across. Well, and one of the reasons maybe uh, the Democrats have done a terrible job campaigning on this Kalila is, you know, the, the conservative Republican message, the one that is holding up this vote right now in part, has always been that there's a belief that health care isn't a right, that, that, that really we don't need to provide health care to people. It's an entitlement program. We need to get rid of it or scale it back. I think that a lot of Democrats and progressives have campaigned on the idea that health care is and should be a right. And while people may agree or disagree with that, I wonder if there's a better argument to be made that health care is an economic imperative. Like the idea of people without health care is people who are spending money that they could be spending on other things, spending money on drugs or a, a doctor's visit. People who are unhealthy aren't as productive. I, I think that there's an awful lot to be said for an economic imperative of thinking about health care more comprehensively than any of these folks have done. I, mean, I think it's clear that heartstrings don't move long-term policy in this country, but purse strings do. And so if you can frame it as this is not a civil rights issue, this is not about whether I think you deserve to have coverage, but about how your lack of coverage is going to make things worse for me and make it more difficult for me to get into the ER or get into the doctor, that's when it moves people. Democrats keep dropping the ball on this. You cannot continue to appeal to a narrow base if you want to win elections, or more importantly, if you want to win policy victories. I, I just want to uh, play a quick clip from uh, Richard Blumenthal. He, uh, the senator, spoke on where we live this week. Lucy uh, asked him about this, this thing the Democrats also don't want to really talk about, which is how there are problems with the Affordable Care Act, as is currently written, and what they have to do to fix it. There are clearly ways to improve the Affordable Care Act, and we should build on it, not destroy it. There are ways to reduce the costs 
to have more competition and more consumer choice, to make sure that the essential health benefits are realistic, to increase subsidies so that people pay fewer deductibles and out-of-pocket costs. But repealing the Affordable Care Act and decimating the program are hardly the best way to do it. I, I will say, as I listen to that, Kevin, what Richard Blumenthal is saying doesn't sound terribly different to me than uh, Donald Trump saying, you're going to get big, beautiful health care, because right? somehow or other we're going to pay for it. Well, he said, he, says we, he said we need to increase the subsidies, which means so that it's more affordable. It means we have to, he wants to spend, spend more money on it. Our other United States senator had, a, uh, I think, an unintended revealing moment when uh, last week he was driving around trying to get the CBO score on the on the bill uh, and said it's absurd that we're going to be uh, reworking one-sixth of the American economy without this seeing this bill. And I thought, well, the first part of that sentence is certainly true, that it is absurd that Congress and others in the federal government keep trying to rework one-sixth of the federal government year after – of, of the American economy year after year after year. And, you know, they don't – what is – look at our politicians. What have Chris Murphy and Richard Blumenthal ever done that causes us to think they might know how our economy works? They're certainly not from personal experience. If they are going to pass it, um, they're going to have to direct some special bonuses basically to some of the fence-sitting senators. Oddly enough, one of the areas that this might involve is opioid treatment, uh, which is a major concern for some of the less persuaded senators. So you may see targeted relief. Uh, on uh, on treatment for opioid addiction and, and related problems going to certain states. Which is how it passed rights. in the first place. Right. I, I want to quickly turn to a, a few things. One more important thing before we get to some of what happened in the White House press room yesterday, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States has, has left a partial travel ban in place, uh, plans to take up that case in the fall. It might, of course, be moot by then. The premise was that there, there's this important 90-day window, which has long since passed, that the Trump administration was asking for review. Um, uh, some analysts are saying that not many people, Kalila, will actually be affected by this partial travel ban, being that uh, many of the, the folks who are coming in already have established some sort of uh, legitimate relationship inside the United States, whatever that means. I think a lot, an awful lot of lawyers, and I'll ask Kevin, the lawyer, about this in just a second. Uh, you know, it might be very hard to parse what a legitimate relationship is. But what do you see in this? Is it is it a partial victory for, for Donald Trump here? I don't see it as a partial victory for Donald Trump. I think the very subjective language of what a legitimate relationship looks like or what that established group looks like is a problem. It is a win for those who support this ban because it extends the amount of time that they can figure out what they want to do and to target particular groups. There's a long time between hearing oral arguments in the fall and delivering that opinion, you know, perhaps early next spring. I think what is going to be the biggest thing coming out of this is the fear that many people will have so they won't even try to engage this process. Kevin, a quick thought on this? Uh, it's, uh, I think it is a, a, a partial victory for him because he's only had defeats on this. So that's something that's a little different than a complete defeat looks like a victory and he and the president always has the megaphone to be able to to um, expand on that and of course uh, you know a president has a lot of discretionary authority when it comes to uh, immigration and is that really what the court is is talking about yeah. here it's 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 saying that we should give the president the discretionary authority that the president no matter who that president is or what he has said on the campaign trail in the past the ability to do this very Correct. thing it is not reading his tweets. 
<laughs> so uh, it's hard to know what kind of victory this is because the court will now take up the entire thing uh, in, in, later on. Um, meanwhile, yeah, just to sort of maybe help people understand. So if you are from one of the banned countries or one of the targeted countries and you want to bring your mother-in-law over you from that country, you've got a pretty good chance of doing it. Uh, if you're a student in one of these countries and you just want to come here and study physics or something, you probably have a poorer chance if you don't have any relationships here. It's uh, one of the questions that I have that's a little unclear to me right now is how this affects um, refugees. Refugees mm -hmm. tend not to have relationships here. Refugees are the people with the most dire need to get here. They are also the most vetted people trying to get here. They may be the people most punished by this bill. Last point is if anybody had any doubt about what kind of justice Neil Gorsuch is, I think we have a pretty early answer, which is that I think there were three justices who were willing to keep the entire ban in place untouched, no, you know, no carve outs or anything like that. He was one of them. Uh, and I think there were two other rulings um, announced this week. Uh, the justice that he is siding with the most consistently, I think, is Clarence Thomas. So if you want to know ideologically or in terms of jurisprudence, you know, who Neil Gorsuch is, I think we're starting to get some early answers here. Uh, just the uh, other day ago, we saw something unusual in the White House uh, press room. We've been having these press briefings that haven't been televised. An awful lot of people in the television news media have been worried about this, although I'm not necessarily sure how much news value any of them have. But Sarah Huckabee Sanders, spokesperson for the president, uh, begins by lambasting fake news, uh, talking about CNN and how they had to fire three journalists over an investigation they now say didn't meet their standards. And then she somehow can't help herself. She, she wants people to watch a new video from uh, conservative undercover video journalist James O'Keefe, who's uh, stood accused of deceptive editing and tactics. Let's just listen to Sarah Huckabee Sanders here. There's a video circulating now, whether it's accurate or not, uh, I don't know. But I would encourage everybody in this room and, frankly, everybody across the country to take a look at it. Uh, I think if it is accurate, I think it's a disgrace to all of media, to all of journalism. So I had a little bit of a turn on this yesterday, and I think as I was watching the the uh, the gentleman in the press room stand up and sort of yell back and forth with with Sanders and 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 listening to some of this, I thought, you know what? There's no reason to even get upset anymore. I, this is it, this is so be <laughs> beyond ridiculous in terms of the way in which the Trump administration is interfacing with the White House press corps. And I think we've always had questions about whether or not the White House press corps really serves a purpose that we would all want them to serve in any administration. I don't know. Is is this something that we should really be paying attention to or is this just more of the circus, the theater? It's the first thing. We should be paying attention. And just very quickly. So this all happened within the context of CNN, apparently pretty badly screwing up uh, a story about the Russian uh, Russian ties and the Russia investigation. It's one of the reasons why, although they, these days they have this bizarre policy of not allowing cameras in for the White House briefing. This is a capricious policy, which they feel, feel free to adjust at their whim. And since they were going to be spanking CNN, they decided, let's bring some cameras in here. Um, I actually, you know, the phrase that jumped out uh, at me from Sarah Huckabee Sanders is, there's a video circulating now. Whether it's accurate or not, I don't know. I mean, this is a very bizarre way to begin any kind of statement from that particular podium. Um, I think what you're seeing now, what I think this portends is a much more broad assault on the press. Uh, and that sort of whether it's accurate or not, I don't know, is a very characteristic attitude of the Trump administration. David Farenthold uh, yesterday reported that in five of Donald Trump's country clubs, there's a framed picture of Donald Trump uh, on the cover of Time magazine uh, in 2009 with Time magazine on that cover touting uh, Donald Trump's many accomplishments on many fronts. It's a complete fake. There is no such 
Time magazine cover. That is not a Time magazine cover that ever appeared. Um, and so it's sort of like, but it's as good as it might as well be. Why not, you know, fake a Time magazine cover and frame it and put it in five of your country clubs? I think at a more serious level, what you're going to see, and having CNN screw up something like this is not helpful, is you're going to see a massive <laughs> assault on the press. Um, you're Sarah Palin uh, yesterday or this morning maybe announced uh, she is suing the New York Times for defamation on a story where, in fact, the New York Times made some mistakes did some retractions. Uh, CNN made some mistakes, did some retractions. One of the things we understand is journalism is imperfect. It it should be practiced at the highest possible standards. Even then, there will be mistakes. When there are mistakes, there need to be retractions and sometimes even uh, apologies. But what the Trump administration will now try to do is introduce a much higher level of punishment. He said during the campaign he wished libel and defamation laws in this country uh, were more permissive uh, and, and made it easier to punish the press. I think you're going to see a lot of that. And maybe ultimately they'll get the judges they need to do this kind of thing. But by way of disclosure, I will just say, Kevin, I do. there is a Wheaties box with me in my little <laughs> uniform at home. It's yes. a fake. And, and people have seen that, so I apologize for that in advance. But because you never had a little league uniform? <laughs> or I was never good enough to make Wheaties. Let's just put it that way. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Are we well, making too big a deal of this or no? my first thought yeah. is it pains me to hear another Arkansas grifter speaking from the White House <laughs> after all these years. <laughs> She's ba- she is as bad as the ones who came before. And, um, you know, I, I, I think we're in a, in a time where we're, we, we simply cannot believe anything that comes out of the podium at the, in the White House press room. Well, and also, yeah. you know, I'm sure she's probably not going to have much to say about that that uh, tweet about the recording of uh, James Comey's conversation with uh, the, uh, Donald Trump that he had to admit to the to a congressional uh, committee. It just simply don't exist. Yeah, and and some people thought was uh, his his talking about that tape was was meant to freeze out James Comey or or chill James Comey. I, uh, I think that part of the, the problem I, I have in watching all this, Kalila, is we, we, when we hear her say, you know, whether or not it's true, it gets back to something we've talked about over and over again. I mean, the guy who runs InfoWars, whose name I don't even want to say anymore, has the ear of, of the president. And, you know, people like me and Colin who do this work professionally find that just noxious beyond belief. However, you know, there is this increasingly um, divided America. I think that the poll that came out this morning that uh, NPR and Marist did with uh, with PBS that that showed uh, you know a, a lot of bad numbers for Congress for the president, it, it shows something really key, which is that the Arkansas person that Kevin was talking about is playing directly to a Trump base, which I think we got it at around 35 to 37 percent. That's what I think a lot of people thought it was before the election, and that's pretty much what it's getting right down to now. But as long as he keeps talking to that base and uses using the podium of the White House to talk to that base in this way, the press is terrible in, in all ways. I mean, we're going to we're going to keep getting this, whether we like it or not. I think it legitimizes what the base has been saying for quite some time. And we're starting to see these spillover effects with people across the spectrum saying, well, yes, I agree. The press is is wrong on this. But I think it's even more dangerous to play so hard and loose with the facts as the spokesperson for the White House on this. It's akin to showing a murky picture of the Loch Ness to say this is why we need increased funding for maritime security. Because this then (laughs) justifies 
all of the people who say this is why the First Amendment shouldn't be absolute and why the press becomes a problem. Make no mistake, the press should play an important role and function in our country. Hopefully this will lead those organizations to say we have to focus on being right and not necessarily being first on a lot of these issues. Yeah, they, they got to get this stuff right. CNN didn't exactly help anybody's case this yeah, week. That's true, but we're living in a time where even when you when you are right, uh, this criticism is is as ferocious. And Colin, yeah, I mean, I don't have another thing to say about that other than watch this relationship develop and watch the lawsuits. Uh, the lawsuits are going to come fast and furious. There's an attempt b- being made to delegitimize the press. That's what Sarah Huckabee Sanders was doing yesterday, and you're going to see a lot more of that. Uh, Colin McEnroe hosts the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Kevin Rennie writes uh, dailyructions.com, and he also is a columnist for the Hartford Current. Kalila Brown-Dean, associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University. When we come back, what's going on at the state capitol? More gridlock there. That's coming up next in the wheelhouse. This is The Wheelhouse. I'm John Dankosky, talking about the week's news with Kalila Brown-Dean from Quinnipiac University, Kevin Rennie, a columnist for the Hartford Current, and Colin McEnroe, who hosts the Colin McEnroe Show on WMPR. What's in your show today, Colin? I'm laughing because we just talked about fake news. We're actually... we're. We're doing a story about a show about psychics today. People, uh, you know, obviously psychics don't stand up very well when they are tested scientifically. On the other hand, law enforcement does continue to use psychics. They try to keep it on the down low. People go to psychics a lot, too. So we're going to have some people who are we I will have the psychic on whom the show Medium was based, uh, the Patricia Arquette vehicle. She her name is Alison Dubois. She'll be with us. But there will also be some people, some skeptics, shall we say. I I asked you what was on the show today, but but I knew it all along, actually. Um. One thing to let you know about next week on July 5th, um, we're going to have a special edition of The Wheelhouse. This is the thing that I taped last week, uh, or a couple weeks ago, I guess it was. It made news. At the International Festival of Arts and Ideas, and as Colin likes to say, Pancakes in, in New Haven, where I sat down and talked with uh, Danny Har, also a columnist uh, for the Hartford Chronicle, and then a Nobel Prize-winning economist Robert Schiller. And we talked about the narratives of the economy, which is kind of a fascinating topic. So that's our special Wheelhouse on July 5th for your holiday enjoyment. Could I also uh, make the yeah. announcement that my uh, colleague, Kevin Rennie, is observing his uh, 15-year anniversary as a Hartford Current columnist this week. Congratulations, Kevin. Thank you. Well, I'm, thank observing you. My, I'm observing my 150. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and maybe at the end of the segment, we'll I, talk. <laughs> Go ahead. I will not. I will never reach Collins. Uh, I know uh, this benchmark. is a, this there's is no a, longevity. In we my should family. do a show just about how long how long running his column is, <laughs> which is a which is a whole uh, different story. Um, we will talk about Kevin's column in just a bit uh, about maybe who's running for governor this year. Let, let's actually listen to the current governor talking about what's happening with the state budget right now. We're not going to have a full year budget between now and July one. It's just not going to happen. I understand everyone says they want it to happen, but they're the same people who have failed to do that since uh, the first week of February. That's Governor uh, Daniel Malloy, Kevin. Basically, he, he has said he's he wouldn't sign off on a Republican uh, plan. He wouldn't sign off on the Democratic plan. The only bill that he'd sign off on is the one that he wrote himself, which means we're not going to have any sort of a budget. I mean, it's not supposed to work this way. we got to have a budget. It's just we a couple days a away. Budget. They should. Now, when I was a very, very, very young man, I was in the legislature the year we enacted the income tax. And we had, you know, we we had budgets. We had, we had loads of budgets. We didn't have a budget that could pass and the governor would sign until late August. Uh, but 
we did our we we were there working on it and passing our co our anti income tax coalition passed three budgets. There were continuing uh, resolutions to keep state government going, and uh, it's it's in, that's that's a fundamental duty to to do something. And um, did you ever pass? Was there a provisional budget at that time? I mean, the, you did eCerts, right? Just to sort of. Yeah, like we did week, e- week, week to week or month to month or something. Yeah, yeah. F- for uh, however many weeks at a time, yeah. um, and then um, as they got closer to uh, having enough votes to um, pass the income tax, they turned the screws. The Weicker people turned the screws, and of course they enacted an income tax. And then he moved out of Connecticut after he left office, like <laughs> so many like, other people we're, are doing. We're, but we're, we're they go- do, you know, you 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 can come together to keep the government running for a short time while you work out a budget. The, yeah. uh, just yeah. Sorry to go on, but no, it's, look, there are many ways, the uh, places where proposals are supposed to come from. So the Senate Republicans have a budget. Certainly Governor Malloy has a budget. Um, I believe the Senate Democrats have a budget. The Senate Republicans say they, I mean, the House Republicans say they have a budget, but I'm not sure that anyone's seen any details. The House Democrats, who are the only caucus with a clear majority, have not proposed anything substantial. Put those proposals out there in front of the members of each chamber and get some votes so that at least we have a place to start from. So in the absence of of any of that happening, in just the last couple days before the end of this legislative year, Colin, we have the possibility of Governor Malloy running the state on executive orders. He proposed a possible mini budget, something that would help fill the gap, which is something that lawmakers don't seem to want to deal with. Well, yeah. So some lawmakers do. Marty Looney, uh, who's the leader of the Democrats in the Senate, is willing to do this. The, the mini budget is, or a provisional budget, it's uh, it's the first quarter, basically, first quarter uh, of the fiscal year. Um, that's what he's proposing. And the other thing that Malloy is saying is that, you know, generally l- legislatures would prefer to vote on a mini budget and have some role in crafting a mini budget as opposed to letting the governor govern by executive order or imperial fiat or whatever we want to call that. And Malloy is his he's saying I'm I'm effectively suggesting that I not be as powerful, you know, that that you guys get involved and it's sort of weird that you guys don't seem to want to get involved. Now as Kevin says, they couldn't be more detached from one another. I mean, even the opposition party, uh, you know, there's definitely a, a Fasano budget, a Republican budget in the Senate. As Kevin says, there may be a Claritas budget somewhere. It, we, we, know, we do know that the House Republicans do not agree with a Fasano Senate Republican budget. So even the opposition party is divided. And some of this also is, I mean, it's everybody's fault. This is like the stupidity equivalent of peak oil. But um, it, it um, I mean, Dan Malloy, although I think he seems more statesmanlike by the day, you know, some of this is his fault because he's never been able to have any kind of relationship uh, with the legislative leadership. They, they won't do something simply because he says it makes sense. In fact, they're almost more likely to, to not do it. I, I, I know we're going to drop this topic soon, so I do want to put my one proposal forward oh, good. that would help fix this in the future. Ban alcohol from the state capitol. Um, you would be surprised how much drinking goes on while these people are basically, quote, at work, unquote. Uh, and it's bad enough that they leave all their work to the last minute and try to pound it out over the, you know, three or four sleepless nights, but they drink while they're doing it. And I, I mean, I think that's not unrelated to the fact that they can't execute this basic function of government, which is to 
put a budget out when, yes, you're, the, the margins, the political margins are narrower than they have been. But that's no excuse. This is your job. Get it done. But I, don't I, drink while you're doing but it. But I think that, that can only be an amendment to my earlier piece of legislation, uh, Kalila, which is you just can't, you can't make law after midnight. I mean, you can't save everything until the last moment. As Kevin said earlier, lawmakers have to have a little fire lit under them, just as many of us do, to meet some sort of a deadline. But when your job is to come together to write a budget in order to allow the state to function moving forward, it's probably best not to leave all that work until the very end of the legislative session, then go into a special session, which doesn't materialize and doesn't do anything, and then wait until the end of the fiscal year, and then have the House Speaker Joe Arasimowitz say something like this about the mini-budget that the governor's provided. Is that what's beneficial for the state of Connecticut? Is it putting another Band-Aid on a situation that requires us to do a surgery? Yeah, but why are we doing a surgery? I mean, it's not about Band-Aids and surgery. Who, who, who harmed the patient? It's not like triage where we didn't know this was coming, right? And it, it's amazing to me because so much of the session for many people seems like performance theater when, you know, it's just sort of how can I situate myself so that when I run or I can get this back to the constituency so it looks really good. Your most basic job is to get this budget done to hammer it out and not wait until the last minute to do it. And so it, it's problematic for both parties. This is clearly the nonpartisan approach to saying do your job and do it well. Yeah, do your job, do it well. And I don't know, Kevin, it, well, go ahead. Well, we I think I'm clearly you know, upset about I agree with Colin about <laughs> alcohol. And I, I'm a libertarian. I have libertarian instincts. But on that, I agree with him. There is a there is a if people knew the amount of drinking that goes on in that workplace, they would be very distressed. Let's tax it really high. Um, yes, yeah. Oh, let's like, increase taxes. So uh, <laughs> but, um, I, you know, uh, Arasimowitz and his uh, and the majority leader in the House, Matthew Ritter, uh, are new to their jobs. It's becoming increasingly obvious. They're also not budget people. That's not what they are known for at the Capitol. And frankly, they just may well be in over their heads, and this may be on their be be, be beyond their limited capability to handle a big issue like this. <laughs> well, the last thing that I would say is, uh, you know, John, uh, although he hasn't mentioned him in a while, has this sort of mythical uh, guy called Deep River Guy, uh, who's just somebody who lives somewhere in Connecticut is trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, and I don't know what Deep River Guy does about this. I mean, they, they really have reached the point where not only can they not communicate with each other very effectively, they really can't communicate with the public. If you were Deep River Guy right now trying to understand this situation, like what's happening right now, I mean, you will note in particular that they, they say things that would only really make sense to somebody else up there. I mean, they don't really make sense at all anyway. But uh, I, Governor Malloy said the other day, everybody knows that the mini budget would be better than executive order. Really? Deep River guy knows that? Mini budget? Executive? What are you talking <laughs> to, about? To be fair, you and Kevin just <laughs> used the term E-cert. E-cert. I okay. was going to explain that. Emergency <laughs> certification is a bill uh, that doesn't go through committee or everything. It's basically drafted by leadership uh, and just rammed through because there's an emergency. It's just but, dropped yeah. on them. Uh, yeah. But but yes, I mean, ultimately, you know, Kevin correctly says it would be good if they just voted a, a few of these things so you kind of could take the temperature of the two chambers. But it would also be good if they would explain things to people. It would also be good if so many House Democrats hadn't chosen this week to plan a vacation. So one reason they can't go in to do their job is because of the narrow partisan divide. The Democrats don't have a majority in Connecticut right now as we sit here. But it's June. The Cape is calling. I mean, what? <laughs> yes. um, all day. But before yeah. we... And so many other Connecticut 
Connecticut entities are going to Massachusetts that they're going to. <laughs> oh, good. What a setup. Let me just quickly ask you, Kevin. I mean, your your column this week. Uh, congratulations on your 15-year anniversary. Uh, plenty of candidates for governor. No ideas. I mean, this all you know fits into the middle of this. We've got, uh, as uh, Colin said, a governor who now that he has stepped away from the idea of running for another term uh, is certainly sounding more statesmanlike and is able to step into a different sort of role. Well, I mean, <laughs> just by comparison, <laughs> just, just by comparison. But I mean, what what do you think about the possibilities for who replaces him? Well, I just think, you know, I ran for office six times. And I was thinking that if if I were a candidate for governor or working for a candidate for governor, I would see this uh, budget stalemate as an opportunity to put some of my ideals forward in a very in an aggressive way. So we have all these candidates out there and none of them seem to be offering solutions to a problem each one would like to be in charge of solving in 18 months. Well, but I, I don't know, Kalila. This is like anybody running for, for office. Do they want to be in charge of solving it, or do they want to be in charge of, like, running the state? I mean, the whole point, I think, of politics, both at the federal level and at the state level, is to grasp power and then use whatever thing you have to maintain that power, which includes perhaps obfuscating what's actually going on, not explaining uh, to Deep River Guy what exactly you're trying to do at the state capitol or at the U.S. Capitol in Washington. I mean, that's what it's really all about. It's about gaining power, not necessarily about you know, what you're going to do when you get there. Well, actually, I want to announce that I'm running for governor. Just kidding. <laughs> it, it is about power, and it's about does that power mean you're involved in the day-to-day operations of what's going on, or are you really setting a vision and helping people to reach that vision? It's been unclear what people of our state want in that regard and of the candidates who have emerged who can do either of those things effectively at the same time. When you look at the economy, when you look at education, you look at all of these other issues, it's going to take someone who can manage that and not just sort of hoard power for themselves. Colin? It's early in the process. This is the process where you're telling the public that you've got two kids and a golden retriever and you played, you know, you were captain of your lacrosse team in college or something. This is what you're saying right now. Um, Even if you do have a plan, I mean, I would guess that Kevin Lembo actually really does have, you know, some kind of you know, blueprint for how he actually would try to fix this fiscal mess. I don't think it's a really good time. I'm sure his handlers would tell him, if he has any, that it's not a good time to be saying that. I I would just say this. This is going to be a very steep climb for anybody on either side of the aisle associated with the political establishment and the status quo. And I mean, you know, in terms of sort of articulating your positions, one thing you can always do is be like Donald Trump and say you're going to, you know, he said he would deliver big, beautiful health care that would have, you know, lower premiums and lower deductibles and cover more people. Well, I mean, he had no way of doing that. You can say it. Um, right right now, I think when you look at this field, I'm still waiting for this person to show up. I can't imagine who this person is or which side of the aisle this person is on. But you're going to see some kind of slightly Trump-like candidate emerge. Trump-like in the sense of not being associated with the political establishment or the status quo. All of these people, to whatever degree they are, will have a huge uphill climb. Well, the other thing I would say is some of these people just are negotiating right now for already for down-ballot positions. I could name names. <laughs> There's some people who are listed in Kevin's article who are never going to be governor. Kevin knows it. I know it. They know it. They're, not, they're trying to get something else. But I, really quickly, Kevin, though, we, we've heard this at the national level as well, that one of the lessons many you know, wealthy people who have no connection to politics have taken from the success of Donald Trump is, hey, maybe I can do this too. Uh, we, of course, have seen people in Connecticut try that time and time again, and it kind of just doesn't work here. I don't well, know. Does them, it work this time? One of them is our senior United States senator who 
who is wealthy and spent $2 million on his campaign in 2010. So we, we have had wealthy people. In- wealthy people, not self-financed people who come from outside of politics. The Linda McMahons, the sure. Ned Lamonts. Yeah, most most places that doesn't that hasn't worked. I mean, uh, I think it's worked in Wisconsin a couple of times, but and the governor of Pennsylvania is uh, is a wealthy person who was from outside of politics, and um, but for the most part, uh, people need some background in politics to to win an election, and uh, I, you know, at the moment, I think that probably. At least Americans in this part of the country are probably pretty wary of uh, outsiders with a lot of money. <laughs> Kevin Rennie writes his blog, dailyructions.com, also writes for the Hartford Current. Uh, Kalila Brown-Dean from Quinnipiac University, our own Colin McEnroe. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, something that happened last week that's still making the news, uh, what a professor at Trinity College wrote on Facebook. It's got a lot of people talking around the nation. We'll talk about it next here on The House. This is The Wheelhouse. I'm John Dankosky. We're talking about the week's news with Colin McEnroe, Kevin Rennie from DailyRuctions.com and the Hartford Current, and Kalila Brown-Dean from Quinnipiac University. And, Kalila, you've been uh, doing a series of specials for us. We're calling Politics Unusual, and we're going to air one next week on July 4th uh, at 9 o'clock. And it's a really interesting conversation. Tell us about what it is. So it's about a collection of organizations that are called the Divine Nine. And they are historically black fraternities and sororities, but they're not exclusively black. So we'll look at how they're not your typical sort of Greek life when you think of that. How are they involved in issues of social justice? How are they connected to movements? So people like Senator Kamala Harris, Congressman John Lewis, Martin Luther King Jr., and even Eleanor Roosevelt were members of these organizations. And what we talk about on the show next week is how they are managing conflicts on college campuses surrounding things like race and racial identity, but also navigating that in the broader society. So it's quite timely. And it's really interesting, too, with all that we're talking about around race on campus, the way in which people talk about race on campus, but also the bad rap, uh, in some cases rightly, that a lot of fraternities and sororities get on college campuses. This is a timely conversation. It is. And so these organizations are founded based on service. And so you have these chapters around the world in places like Dubai and Tokyo, Liberia, and here in the U.S. And so they're really pushing back against that notion that Greek life is all about excessive drinking and people behaving badly in college. So we talk about how that's different and in what ways it can be a model for other organizations. Second time we've talked about excessive drinking on the program today. So that's <laughs> next week on July 4th uh, here on WNPR. Um, something happened last night. Yes. Say. I'm so happy to be on a program where we mention where someone mentions Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just very. <laughs> it doesn't happen everywhere. Um, Trinity College has placed on leave uh, a professor, uh, Johnny Williams, for some things that he wrote on Facebook. He was posting uh, another piece that was on Medium with some inflammatory language on it. He used. Uh, as we said earlier in the program, an inflammatory hashtag. It caused an awful lot of people in the right-wing media to share this story widely. It then caused an awful lot of people calling, it seems, to call in threats against the professor and against Trinity College. It shut down the, the college last week. And so now we have one of these controversies in which there's a question about how far can a college professor go in using language and whether or not that should get him in hot, hot water. Where do you see this story? Well, I think it's sort of helpful just to, I can just, I'll do this really quickly to sort of know exactly what he did. So on June 18th, uh, John, Johnny Williams uh, did two Facebook posts. Uh, 
One was a reposting of an article from Medium. He didn't write this article. Uh, it, it, uh, it was written by somebody else. I don't think it's a particularly good article or essay or whatever, but um, it, it basically made the argument that, you know, uh, if you're dealing with bigots, uh, you shouldn't do anything to save them. Uh, it was uh, it used the Steve Scalise situation as an example. But it instead of the, uh, then there was this sort of incantatory part at the end, like if their plane is crashing, let them die. If they're having a heart attack, let them die, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he posted that, uh, plus uh, it is this profanity salted um, set of uh, posts. It is past time for the racially oppressed to do what people who believe themselves to be white will not do, put an end to the vectors of their destructive mythology of whiteness and their white supremacy system. Hashtag let them effing die. Uh, the second post was, I am fed the F up with self-identified whites daily violence directed at immigrants, Muslim, and sexual and racially oppressed people. The time is now to confront these inhuman A-words and, and this now. So those were the two posts that kind of started it all. Then there's this kind of multiplier effect. It got picked up by something uh, called Campus Reform, which is one of several websites, uh, conservative-leaning websites that monitor uh, professions of this kind uh, and then report on them. They get circulated out to the right-wing press. Uh, they wind up on Fox News. There's, it's like the game of telephone, too, as each, each time it's re-whispered, there's a little bit of a deterioration of the accuracy or the way in which this thing has been characterized. I will say, however, though, that these posts are murky enough and confusing enough so that he, he made, I mean, I think there's sort of, you know, there's two principles here. Words matter. Uh, and don't be stupid. Uh, and there are things in this post that I think are unnecessarily inflammatory and unclear in their meaning. You could read these posts in a couple of different ways. And, I, you know, the fact that he's been placed on leave, which I assume means like suspended with pay or something. I, I, Joanne Brugger Sweeney, I don't know that she she's the president of Trinity. I don't know that she had another really great choice, but I probably I, I know people do you disagree about that? So, Kalila, your thought on this? Well, I think it's such a complicated situation because to me it's more than just about this one professor because we're seeing this at colleges and universities across the country. The University of Delaware has fired one of its professors. Essex Community College has fired a professor for making comments in a similar vein. But I think the problem, whether we're talking about student behavior of faculty behavior is that our rush to say let's fire this person never really addresses the core of what the issue is. And when colleges rush to sort of sweep these things under the rug and move on to the next story, we become so reactionary that we never get to a place where people can really engage difference in a meaningful way. And instead we retreat because we don't want the label of being racist or the label of being insensitive and intolerant without ever addressing the core of people across the spectrum of why they feel the way they do and what we can do to address that. So, so in the vein of what Colin was saying earlier about words matter. I, I wonder if the, the, the line that gets crossed on a college campus is anything that has to do with die. It's not about the effing, and again, it wasn't the effing, that wasn't the word, it was another word, but it was about the die part. If you start to make something that sounds like a threat, then that sets off triggers at college campuses that aren't about, you know, liberal snowflakes being worried about trigger warnings. It, it's actually a threat that people should be worried about in some cases. And there are certain things that are totally beyond the pale, and that is one of them. That hashtag is beyond the pale. You totally lose the credibility of the argument of saying white supremacy as an ideology needs to go away or we need to have those difficult conversations with ourselves. It sets it on a completely different plane. College 
colleges have to protect their students. They have to protect their economic bottom line. And it's not about fairness at this point. We're, we're far beyond that argument. Colleges have been dealing with this really over the last three years at a fever pitch. Kevin? Well, when you condone violence in a, in a you appear to condone violence in a, in a really out, send it out into the universe on Facebook or Twitter or anything, you're going to get attention. I think the, you know, we're having a very hard time in college campuses, college administrators especially, having a difficult time adjusting to this new age of you can throw anything you want out there into the universe and whoever picks it up may or may not be able to do something with it. And, you know, this is not a, this is not a First Amendment issue because it's not the government uh, making rules about speech. But Trinity's going to have to take a look at their own rules about uh, their own handbook about uh, conduct of academics and decide, well, uh, does, does, this, does this professor have the freedom to do this under our rules? And, and those are going to be uncomfortable conclusions for them. And I think it's not about free speech, but it is very much about academic freedom and the marketplace of ideas that happens on college campuses. The state of Virginia just passed a law that goes into effect next week that says no college institution of higher learning can deny a speaker based on the views. So it's it's interesting the timing. Richard Spencer will be there next week. It's one way of saying just because you don't like what someone says, you cannot deny them the opportunity to say it. Last thought, Colin? Uh, you know, Yale recently fired one of its deans for her Yelp review which I would say impinged on, on campus life a little less drastically than Johnny Williams's, but with you know a little less of a furor. I don't know. This this story probably needs to be talked about a little bit more, and, and maybe we're a good place to do it. Uh, Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thanks so much, Colin. Thank you. Thanks to Kalila Brown-Dean from Quinnipiac University. Listen to her next week here on July 4th. Thank you, Kalila. And thanks, thanks to Kevin Rennie from DailyRuctions.com and the Hartford Current. Uh, this is The Wheelhouse. I'm John Dankosky.